Well, hey there. Good morning, Story family. Glad y'all are here. Welcome to the story. Um, especially if you're kind of new to the story, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thanks for being here. I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be uh, teaching for the next half hour or so about a topic that um, is near and dear to, to my heart. But before we get there, I just want to say a, a, a word of welcome. And, um, you know, we're, we're uh, celebrating a lot here in Houston this week. Uh, summer, we pray, is almost over. It has been grueling, but silver linings, the Astros are fighting for first place, and Verlander is now an Astro again, so that's pretty cool. And the Yankees and Red Sox are fighting for last place, which is exactly how God intended things to be. So I know someone who's not here with us in person, but who is watching online as part of our online community, um, who is an Astros fan and a great Houstonian, Jerry Tauber. I just want to say hi to Jerry, who hasn't been able physically to get out and about, he and his wife, Lynn, um, as she uh, has been sort of nursing him. And uh, we pray for you, Jerry. We're glad that uh, you're with us online today. And all of you that are joining us online, thanks for, for being here. Okay, Story family, we've got some good stuff to dig into today. I'm really excited and, of course, uh, slightly nervous about uh, this whole series, really. The series is called The Summer of Love, and, and it's a series about dating, mostly. And I haven't been, like, on the singles dating scene since I was 19, really 18 years old, and I was terrible at it then. And uh, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to do my research and Bible study and conversations with people in this community and we're trying to be as helpful as we can to folks who are uh, at different stations along the journey of relationships and hopefully on the way to marriage. But we know marriage isn't for everyone, but, but the, the dating scene can be really brutal. And um, over the last few weeks, this is part five today, five of seven of this series called Summer of Love. And, and over the last few weeks, what we've been doing is debunking myths and lies that are just basically universally repeated and believed by most people in the world um, and some of those lies, like in week one, we, we talked about how the purpose of dating, the, the lie is that the purpose of dating is to find someone who makes you happy. And what a, what a pernicious lie that can be if you really chase that. Um, you end up finding everything but happiness in a way and, and everything but fulfillment. And we talked about how the real purpose of dating is that if there is a biblical purpose of dating, which dating doesn't exist in the Bible, it's a pretty new concept, but if there is a a purpose biblically for it, it is to find someone to marry, which anyone who's married will tell you, finding someone who makes you happy and finding someone to marry can be two very different things, all right? So it's not always, it's not always the same. Hopefully there's some overlap. It comes and it goes, but, but the idea of dating must be marriage as the end goal. Otherwise, I've argued that dating doesn't make a lot of sense and it doesn't, it's not really good for anyone um, without that. We'll talk more about that today. Week two, Pastor Kale talked to us about um, the secret to success in dating. He said the lie is that it's quantity. The more you put yourself out there, the more apps you're on, the more dates you go on, the more people you meet, the better your chances of finding love, right? Finding your one and only soulmate or whatever. And he talked about how it's not about quantity. Like with everything else, it's about quality over quantity. Um, week three, we talked about sex, and that's when things really took an awkward turn here at the Story Church, as I talked about sex and the lie of sex being in our culture that sex is whatever you want it to be. So it's subjective. It's up to you to decide what sex means and what it doesn't mean. And we said that the biblical truth about sex is that it is God's gift to us meant only and exclusively for marriage. And we talked about that in week three. Last week, as if things couldn't get more cringy, I talked about pornography for half an hour up here, and or probably 38, 
39 minutes up here. And the lie about pornography is that it is a healthy or helpful alternative to sleeping around with people. And the truth about pornography is that it is evil, insidious, deceptive, destructive. You're made for so much more than that trash. So what are you doing wasting your life, hours of your life every week with that trash? You can do better. You're made for more. So that was last week's <laughs> message. And, uh, and today we're taking a slight pivot with the, the topic. It's, we're still talking primarily to unmarried people. But we're talking to unmarried people today about marriage. And so the topic is marriage, but, but I didn't write this message with married people in mind. Now, if you're married and you're here, I hope something you hear today will maybe reignite or, or encourage you in your marriage and make your marriage stronger. That's, that'll be a cool byproduct. But I wrote this message primarily for unmarried single people who are either in a long-term committed relationship, but they're not married, or they sort of want to be, like that's what they're looking for, is a committed, monogamous, long-term, loving relationship, So, but unmarried. So that's sort of who I had in mind when I wrote this. And if that's not you, and it seems like the farthest thing from you, and you're like, well, I guess I'll just, you know, scroll Instagram for the next half hour. Like, you know and love someone. You're responsible probably for someone who is in this boat or, or will be one day. And so I hope this message gives you something to share with them that is good and beneficial and, and encouraging um, to them. So um, what I hear from that demographic, when I talk to them about marriage, I hear a lot of cynicism from unmarried people who are in relationships, a lot of cynicism about marriage, not across the board. Some of y'all are still hopeless romantics and you're like, it's perfect, whatever. But, but a lot of people are really struggling, not just to find someone to marry, but struggling with the concept of marriage. Like, is it time maybe for us to put marriage aside and, and just like move on from marriage? Maybe, and I'm hearing people say, maybe we should be asking fundamental questions like, what is, what, what is marriage good for these days? Who is marriage good for these days? Isn't it just a contract to be made and broken? And if so, why go through the complications of making it and breaking it? You know, these are the kinds of real questions people, I would say especially young men, are asking. It, they're being told by their social media influencers that marriage is a bad deal. If it's a contract, it's a contract that no good businessman would ever enter into. That's what our son's social media influencers are telling them. No businessman would ever tell you to go into a contract where you put half of your net worth on the line based on promises that both people in a marriage are sure to break. Let's be real about the promises we make when we get married. Like two people stand before God and their pastor and their families in the house of the Lord and they just lie. They lie. It's not their fault. The pastor prompts them to lie. Nobody says, are you sure? Like, that would be a weird wedding if somebody says, are you, are you for real? Like, think about the vows we take in, uh, at a wedding, at a typical wedding. I know everybody's wanting to change and write their own vows. I think people just want to write their own vows to get around the stark, dark reality of our inevitable failure when it comes to the real vows <laughs> of marriage. And people are like, I'll write my own. You're my captain and I'm your shipmate or whatever. It's like, no, that's not what it is. Okay, marriage is making unkeepable promises. 
and striving to keep them. And, and let's, let's, look at them, let's look at these uh, unkeepable promises that we make at a, at a wedding. We say, I will have and hold you. I will love and cherish you for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. I will honor you and keep you and, 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 and only you forsaking all others for as long as we both shall live. Now, anyone who's been married for five minutes has already broken at least one of those because marriage is over the long haul full of moments and seasons where we dishonor and disrespect each other, you know, in our thoughts, if not our words and actions. And, and so the, the average person today looks at what we call marriage and just thinks it's crazy. Like, like why enter into that? I think that's why fewer and fewer people are getting married. And I, you've heard these stats, but I'll just, I'll, I'll run the latest uh, data past you here. This is uh, the percentage of American adults who were married in 1970. That was 77%. In 1990, it dips, but not too far, to 70%. But by 2022, last year, only 45% of American adults were married, the lowest percentage in history, in the history of our nation. That's just... Christianity aside, faith aside, church aside, that is an unsustainable statistic for any civilization. Like you can't sustain uh, a civilization with a number like that. I guess we'll see uh, what the future, what, what this means for the future. But it's not just our lack of getting married that is changing. It's not just whether we want to get married or get married or not. It's our overall cultural opinions about what marriage is for. This is what really stuck out to me in like the 70s, let's say, in 19, uh, 1980. Um, this was not that long ago, 43 years ago. Four out of five Americans agreed that, so 79% of Americans agreed that two people who have uh, children together or who are having children together should get married. It's very important. That was how it was worded. It's very important for two people having kids together to get married. It was a given. It was a given. Four out of five people. And that fifth person was like the dentist who didn't recommend your toothbrush or whatever. It's like, they're on, who, who are these people? You know, wouldn't, that wouldn't agree to this. Of course, it's a given. And then, and then in 2006, it fell to just half of all Americans who agreed that it's very important. And then in 2020, it was uh, 29%. 29% of Americans agree that it's important to raise kids. And I, I could preach a whole sermon about the virtues and benefits of raising children within, within, within marriage. Versus not. I mean, it's just, it's clear what's better for the kids. But something's happening in our culture. It's a seismic shift. It can't be denied. So what are we going to do about it? What do we say about it as Christians? What do we say about it? Do we just condemn the world and point our fingers in righteous judgment? I hope not. But I do want to say, I think it's, I think it's clear there's a connection between data points like these and this underlying pernicious lie that we're debunking today as um, part of this message. This is a lie that has been um, repeated again and again um, and uh, by the likes of uh, social media influencers like, um, I know this is the second week in a row, I'm sharing a video from a former adult film star and Y'all are probably wondering, like, what am I getting myself into? Um, the research has been involved for this series, I will say that. But, but in this particular instance, this young woman uh, went viral for taking to TikTok 
and sharing marriage advice with her 38 million followers on TikTok. Her name is um, Mia Khalifa. If your teenage son just uh, bounced his head up, uh, you might want to check on him after the service. Mia Khalifa uh, in recent years has been one of the most famous uh, porn stars in our culture, in the world. And this is what she said to her 38 million followers about marriage. Oh, we're comparing stats. Baby girl doesn't know that I am Tom Brady at this game. Married at 18, divorced at 21. Second marriage, married at 25, divorced at 28. Third engagement, engaged at 29, ended it at 30, but I kept the ring. I'm still keeping Tom Brady on his toes. We should not be afraid to leave these men. We are not stuck with these people. Marriage is not a sanctimonious thing. It is, it is paperwork. It's something, it's, it's, it's a commitment you make to someone. But if you feel like you're not getting anything from that commitment and you're trying, you gotta go, you gotta go, you have to go. Okay, so if you were looking for marriage advice uh, from a twice divorced uh, former adult film star uh, who is the Tom Brady of divorces, as she put it in that video. There you have it. Um, but I will say, if you look at marriage as a contract, it's hard to disagree with Ms. Khalifa's conclusions. And I will say, out of compassion, I understand how someone like her and many, many others come to those conclusions about marriage. I understand it. I just think it's a false presupposition. Okay, so the lie we're breaking down today is that marriage is just a piece of paper. And the question for us Christians is, if it's not just a piece of paper, then what is it? And why is this something we should contend for in the community today? I mean, Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. You know, you don't have to be married to have a fulfilled life. We acknowledge all of that. Some people that are married or were married are miserable. We acknowledge that. But is marriage still worth fighting for? I believe that it is. And I believe that it's much more than just a piece of of paper. All right. So as I mentioned before, one of the issues I have with um, dating as it stands now is that without a uh, presumption of marriage, or at least a goal in mind of marriage, dating quickly devolves into something truly diminished. Like Pastor Kale told us dating is kind of new to the English vernacular. I don't know how many of you remember that. It was one of the most eye-opening things I've learned in this series, is that dating hasn't been a part of the English language for very long. It came about in the early 1900s, and it wasn't romantic at all. If you wanted to find a wife or a husband back then, you courted and you called. Dating was for men booking and paying for a date literally a date in the calendar with a lady of the night, like reserving his spot. So we get the word dating from prostitution, which it's no small irony to me now that dating as it stands today without the presumption of marriage as the goal quickly becomes a slightly more polite form of prostitution. And I really wrestled with that line because single people are going to be like, what did he just say about us? It's like, all right, so just hang in there with me. Without marriage as the end goal, what does dating then become? How does it serve us? What I see a lot of is people asking fundamental questions on the dating scene today, questions like, implicitly, they're not asking this out loud, but 
questions they're really asking with their actions are, what's a body worth? What's her body worth? What's the most intimate, private, personal, special thing I have to give another person worth? Is it worth one date, one dinner? Is it worth dinner and drinks? Is it worth three dates, three dinners? I mean, so much of the modern dating scene revolves around the simple but crass question of what's it going to cost him to get her to do that? That's just reality. And that's what happens. We become animals, in a sense, when we take marriage out of the equation as the aspirational end goal of dating. And you might say, hey, we're not, Eric, that's unfair. We're not out here doing that. If you're a single person, maybe offended, we're not out here treating people like prostitutes. Okay, you know, okay. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And, and maybe the, the fact is you just have lost faith in the old school institution of marriage because your parents' marriage fell apart and it broke your heart. And you no longer believe that it's a good deal that any, you know, thinking person would get themselves into. I get it. I get it. Marriage is insane. It is. It's an insane proposition to stand and accept the vows we just read earlier. It feels counter and contrary to everything everybody's told us about ourselves and our lives. We should be in it for ourselves, to look after ourselves, to seek our own fulfillment. And now you're telling me I found someone I kind of like and maybe love and I have to shackle myself to them forever? What happens when they stop being funny and I stop laughing at their jokes? What happens when she stops being as attractive to me as she was the day that I met her? What happens when we're not as happy? Is it Ms. Khalifa's advice, right? You got to go, you got to go, you got to Like, is that right? I mean, that's what common sense today would tell us. But marriage says, no, you stay shackled to the one whose problems are now your problems. And over time, you realize the one you're shackled to is every bit as broken as you are. And they keep talking about how broken they think you are to them. And it's just like we have to figure out these problems when it would just be way easier to walk away and find someone else to fool for a while. Yeah, I get it. I get why marriage is not an attractive proposition. It's hard. And I think that's why cohabitating and living together without getting married is, has been in vogue now for quite some time. Because cohabitating introduces a, a plan by which everyone gets to enjoy the benefits and privileges of marriage without all the nasty commitment part of it. And, and, and you know, I, I could make a case that as insane as marriage may sound, this obsession with cohabitation is every bit as insane, if not more so. Every data point suggests people who choose to cohabitate instead of getting married are not as happy, not as fulfilled, not as satisfied in their relationship, and they're more likely to break up than someone who's married. And there are cohabitating couples in our church, all right? And I'm not judging you. And you would probably say to me, we're not living together instead of getting married. We're living together before getting married, okay? I love you, I love you. And like I said last week or two weeks ago, there's only one way to make this problem right in my mind, and 
This isn't one of those churches that won't marry you because you're cohabitating. Look, if you're cohabitating and you have been for some time and you're just waiting until you raise enough money for the dream wedding or whatever, I will stop this sermon right now and marry you. Right now. In front of all these people. For free. (laughs) You can spend all that money on a honeymoon. And you don't have to hear the second half of this sermon. So everybody wins. <laughs> Any takers? Y'all laugh. I've done a handful of impromptu weddings over the years from people I've just, in a spontaneous moment, talked into getting married because they were just waiting. Waiting for what? They didn't have a good explanation. I think it's just the fear of this incredible gulf we jump into whenever we say yes to these unattainable promises of marriage. Now, as crazy as it may be to shackle yourself to one person in marriage, I would argue it's even crazier not to over the long haul. And here's why. When you're married, it's true. When you're married, you say, I'm here with you, whether we like it or not. I'm not going anywhere I chose you then, so I choose you now, and for better or worse, we're together. There's nothing that's going to change it. (laughs) And you say, I'm here for you no matter what. And what do you say when you're cohabitating? In contrast to that, when we're cohabitating, we say, "I'm, I'm with you for now. I choose you for now. I'll go to bed with you for now. I'll take what you give me for now, but... I'd like to hold out and hedge my bets just in case something better happens to come along. Or just in case we lose our spark for a season and someone else at work has a better spark than you. Or in case I find someone who still laughs at my jokes or someone who tells better jokes that I laugh at. Or someone who's taller, someone who's skinnier, or someone who's younger, someone who's prettier. Just in case I'm hedging my bets. I choose you for now. Do you you see... What a selfish and destructive way of looking at the world and looking at each other that that really is. And all the studies show, and this is, I don't mean this to be as bad as it sounds, but it's the reality. Even couples that cohabitate as they wait to get married, once they get married, they have much higher rates of divorce than couples that don't. Why? Because it's something about living together and taking from each other and hedging with each other that undermines how we look at each other. So again, cohabitating couples, I love you. And I know who you are, by the way. You're not hiding from me. There's only one way to end this sermon now, by show of hands, okay? I've got, I've got it all memorized, the whole wedding ceremony. I've done hundreds of them. I'll do it right now. Don't even need notes, okay? Raise your hands. It's an altar call today is cohabitating couples, <laughs> all right? Seeking marriage. Okay. Now, when we look at Christian marriage in particular, I believe what God has given us is the best, most life-giving plan for human romantic relationships the world has ever known, and it's not even close. Two people shackling themselves to each other and saying it's you and no one else, no matter what, is the best, most life-giving way to live your life in loving relationship. And uh, as crazy as it might sound to the world, it's the best thing that could happen to most of us. The best-selling and most influential Christian book 
of the 21st century was written in 2003, and it didn't start with some intellectual treatise on, you know, whatever exegesis of biblical texts. It started with a four-word sentence, a very simple and profound phrase, and it started with this line, this opening line to the most influential book of this century. It's not about you. That's pretty shocking, right? What makes this four-word phrase so shocking is how countercultural it is. What do you mean it's not about me? It's been about me my whole life. Mama said it was about me. You know, the teachers said it was about me. Everybody I've known and everybody I've liked said it was all about me. And I've always believed it's all about me. Even the stewardess on the airline said it's about me first, and then I help other people. It's about me. And then this guy comes along and says it's not about you, and he sells 50 million copies of this book. There's something so attractive about something so radical and so simple and where did Rick Warren, who's the author of The Purpose Driven Life, where did he get this idea? Look, it's not rocket science. It's embedded and in, 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 in woven throughout the fabric of the whole Bible, especially the New Testament. The message again and again is it's, all, it's not about you. It's all about others. It's not about you. And if you were to ever write a book about your own salvation story, it would probably begin with the same four-word line. It wasn't about me. That's in many ways the beginning of a salvation story, I think. Not about you. And that's, I think, why people are so drawn to this. And Rick Warren got it from the New Testament. Lines like some of you who are even non-religious people uh, will recognize 1 Corinthians 13. Have you ever been to a wedding? Everybody reads 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody knows. The Bible says, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. And it is not self-seeking. The implication here is that your life is not about you. Your life is about love, and love is not selfish. Not real love, anyway. Now, um, Jesus, uh, you know, he comes on the scene, and, and he, he drills down even deeper with this theme of what perfect or real love looks like. And he said to his disciples in John 15, verse 13, that perfect love or greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life, for his friends. And, and what Jesus taught us with words like these and with his actions on the cross, what he taught us is that real love is not about you. It's about your beloved. It's about the one or those for whom you would lay everything down, even your own life. That's what real love looks like, laying your life down. And Paul uh, summed it up the best in, in uh, Philippians 2, summed up the whole gospel of Jesus this way uh, by showing us exactly what selfless love looks like. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, if you're looking for a verse or a passage this week to remember and dig into, this is a great place to start. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then this letter just gets better and better. 
Philippians 2 is such a key chapter to understand the gospel. Well, what Paul is saying here is that if our life is not about me, it's about love. And if love is not about me, it's about my beloved, then, then what does it mean to embrace that kind of love? It's not about just what I want. It's about something bigger than me. Paul would say it's about Jesus. Our loving relationships are primarily about Jesus and about those he puts in our path, and in particular, those to whom we are married. That is one of the great gifts of marriage. Everything in Scripture compels us to reject this earthly, I would call it evil, compulsion to selfish human pride. And instead of embracing selfish human pride, to embrace the selfless love of God. And marriage is one of the key ways that we can do that and apply that and learn that before we get to heaven so that we will understand very well, in a sense, as much as we can, the way God loves us. I'm not saying you have to be married to understand this. I'm just saying marriage can be one of the best, most powerful vehicles to get us there. All right. So uh, one last passage that that I would uh, share with you is from uh, Ephesians chapter five, and this is sort of the Bible's most practical yet paradoxical instruction on Christian marriage. I mean, this is wild. This is not what people think Christian marriage is really about. Ephesians five verses twenty one and twenty two. Submit. Paul said, "Who? If, if I just said that one word, submit." Who would, y'all, who would y'all think the world would assume? Who does the world assume that the Bible's talking to here? Wives, right? Uh-huh. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, if you keep reading in Philippians 2, you know the whole church, all of Christians believed that Jesus submitted himself to the church and to our interests in love. He submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, right? And so the whole point of this kind of love is ultimate submission. It's not that wives submit and husbands don't. It's wives submit and husbands submit even more. Like that's the Christian ideal. It's this mutual submission. That's why no married couple can ever decide where to eat. (laughs) That's the problem. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you? Okay, mutual submission. It's a paradox, but it's a beautiful paradox. It's exactly the vision of God for us. So when we marry another, we say, I love you for you, not just for me. I choose you for your sake, not just for mine. I love you for God's sake. I love you forever. So if the lie is that marriage is just a piece of paper, what is our, uh, what is our truth today? What's the truth of Scripture about marriage? We would say Christian marriage is a profound mystery by which a man and a woman, after submitting themselves completely to and for each other, become civilized, safe and sanctified as they love each other to death. Civilized, safe and sanctified. When I think about what marriage has done for me by teaching me to love selflessly, it has civilized me. I was a boy masquerading as a man 
when Pastor Gio married me at uh, the age of 20. This was us at the cheapest wedding in human history. That was us. Cheap yet priceless in my estimation. It took a long time for our marriage to civilize me. What do I mean by civilize me? It uh, took my boyish ambitions, which had to do with, you know, hot girls and video games and sports and, um, you know, just basically wasting time. It took all my boyish ambitions and slowly transformed them into grown-up sacrifice. There was a time when I would work and save my money so that I could buy myself something and I would be happy with it for a half an hour. And now, and now, and now I work, and I work with the only intention being to bring something home to that woman. And nothing makes me happier than to bring something home that makes her smile. And I would rather give her a hundred things that make her smile than buy myself even one. Because our marriage over time has civilized me. Some of you are like young guys that watch your Andrew Tates of the world. You're like, well, he's a simp. He's simping. He's a simp. No, I'm a man. And you'll understand it one day once you stop watching Andrew Tate. and Learn to grow up and give your life for a girl that the Lord is kind enough to give you. You'll understand it one day, what it means to be a living sacrifice. And in her patience and forbearance with me over the years, she has grown too. As she has worked in cahoots with the Lord to civilize me, she has also grown in her understanding of what grace actually means. And so there's a spiritual thing that happens over time in a marriage when two people, two imperfect, flawed people shackle themselves to one another. It civilizes, I would say it mostly civilizes men, but it also secures or makes safe or protects women. This is an undervalued aspect of marriage in the age of third wave feminism, which tells us women don't need no man, and uh, I can change my own tire, and I, I don't need no man to protect me. Okay, all right. I'm not telling you how to live your life. I'm just telling you, when there's a noise downstairs, I'm the one who has to go, all right? And that's the way it should be, okay? That's how God designed us. doesn't mean you're unsafe just because you're unmarried. It just means when you're married, it's a gift from God to have an added layer of safety and protection. And it's not just about prowlers and noises downstairs. It's about so much more than that. And, and my parents' marriage has taught me that over the years. They were married for 49 years before my mom passed last month. 49 years. They got married younger than Gio and I. We were 20. We got married. They were 16 when they got married. It's an East Texas thing. Some of you don't understand, but <laughs> anyway, they got married at 16, and, and the, the security that their marriage afforded my mother, who otherwise would have been a single, unwed mom, teenage mom, but for my dad's commitment to her, the security that his commitment to her and his willingness to work a full-time job in a paper mill, which if you've never been to a paper mill, you don't know what a hell on earth those things are. For 25 years, he slaved away in a paper mill, vastly overqualified for that job, working 
just to bring my mama something home, to make her feel safe. And I watched my mother thrive in that environment, thrive in the safety of their marriage. For decades, she thrived, even through our relative poverty and through our problems. And she had to civilize him, just like Gio and every wife has to civilize her husbands. He had a temper and all that stuff, but he grew out of it over time, thanks to her patience and God's grace. And she thrived as a mother. She thrived as a grandmother. They had the freedom to enjoy time with their four grandchildren. She thrived even after 16 years ago when she received her first cancer diagnosis and over the last 16 years as they had to drive back and forth countless times from Arkansas down to Houston for countless appointments because my dad refused to let them settle for some backwater Arkansas hospital. We're going to Houston, he said. Every week they drove to Houston, and who was the one who drove her? He was. Who was the one holding her hand at every turn, even as she lost her hair, as she lost her weight? She lost her ability to be there for him and she had in the past. He kept holding her hand, taking her everywhere she needed to be, protecting her as a husband should. And he held her hand with dignity right to the very end. I know the world will tell you the Christian view of marriage is messed up. I'm telling you, it's the best. It's the best way to be in love. And for most of us, it's the best way to live our lives and to experience the whole gospel of Jesus every day. Is it perfect? No. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Is it worth it? Certainly. Jesus showed us how much love is worth it when he took the cross for us, and he invites us to take the cross for each other every day. And marriage is a beautiful way that God gives us to do that. And so my question to some of you, not all of you, but some of you is, it's like if you're single and maybe you're in a relationship or maybe there's someone special in your life, it's like, what are you waiting for? And I hear women in that position say, I'm just waiting for, for the right man to come along. It's like, that's probably him. You just don't know it yet because you haven't married him and grown him up yet. <laughs> it's probably already him. And men say, I'm just waiting for the right time. Bro, bro, there's never a right time. What are you talking about? Now's the time. Lock it down, bro. It's no time like the present, especially if she loves the Lord. And you can watch the Lord then use your marriage to civilize you to bring safety to both of your lives and to sanctify you both in preparation for the eternity that awaits you in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your gift of marriage to us. And we know that uh, in our sin and, gosh, in the fallenness of this world, marriage has become something far different than what you created it to be. And we have experienced the brokenness of it. And some of us are jaded by that. And Lord, just minister to our broken hearts if that's the case today. But Lord, help us not to confuse the fallenness of man with your perfect design for something like marriage and your um, grace in what marriage could mean for us. Lord, for the married people that are here today whose marriages might not be doing that great, I pray for revival in the marriage. I pray for your spirit to move and to bring them a refreshed vision of what 
you are calling them to be as husband and wife. We pray all these things with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.